We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Nehemiah chapter 2. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in his presence before. Therefore the king said to me, Why is your face sad, since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid and said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad? When the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste, and its gates are burned with fire. And the king said to me, What do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, queen also sitting beside him, how long will your journey be and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me and I set him a time. Furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple for the city wall and for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Then I went to the governors in the region beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. And I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well and the refuse gate and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates, which were burned with fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, there was no room for the animal under me to pass. So I went up in the night by the valley and viewed the wall. Then I turned back and entered the, by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the others who did the work. Then I said to them, You see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste, and its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. So they said, Let us rise up and build. And they set their hands to do this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they laughed at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? 
So I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore we his servants will arise and build. But you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. But I'll invite you to first turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. And we'll pick up where we left off last time in the section verses 11 to 16. We are focusing on a number of commands or instructions that Paul is giving to Timothy specifically, although it generally applies to the church, but really Paul is kind of narrowing his focus to Timothy and his personal pastoral ministry. And I've entitled the second part of this message, Qualities of Pastoral Ministry. Really, the first part is that as well. And uh, we started in verse 11, and I'll read that again, verses 11 and 12, and then the rest of that section, which goes through verse 16, which will be uh, our focus this evening, verses 12 to 16, or 13 to 16, that is. But beginning in verse 11 of 1 Timothy 4, Paul writes this to Timothy. He says, These things command and teach. Let no one despise your youth, but rather, we could say, be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of hands of the eldership. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them, that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Without reviewing too much, you might remember that last time our attention was on verses 11 and 12. In the first verse, we saw two instructions that Timothy was to follow, and that was that he was to be commanding and teaching. These two uh, actions are important to the pastoral ministry. Commanding kind of has this idea of, of commanding or prohibiting against certain things and encouraging other kind of practices and Teaching has this kind of idea of explaining uh, sound doctrine, and so Timothy and his pastoral ministry or his ministry in Ephesus was to be doing these two things, commanding and teaching. And then these things that uh, Paul tells Timothy to teach are the things which are in the immediate context, so verses 6 through 10, but really it goes back to all of what he has set up to this point in the epistle. And then in verse 12, Paul gives this command that, or this prohibition that, that he should not let anyone despise his youth. And we said that doesn't mean that Timothy is to go around commanding respect, you know, telling others to, to respect him just for any old reason, but rather the idea here is that he's not to give the people any legitimate reason for them to disrespect him uh, by his conduct. Rather, in contrast, he is to be an example to the believers, to be a positive example of godliness, of good conduct. And in these specific areas, but really in all areas in general, he is to be an example in conduct, love, spirit, faith, and purity. And then Paul says this in verse 13. He says, Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, and to 
doctrine. And what I draw from this instruction to Timothy in this verse is that Timothy is to have a Bible-centered ministry or Bible-centered worship. Paul tells Timothy that his focus in his ministry in the church should be upon the public proclamation of Scripture. Specifically, he says, reading, exhortation, and doctrine. It's in these ways, reading, exhortation, and doctrine, that Timothy is to apply his, if I can say it this way, his trade, his, his work in ministering in the church of Ephesus. Note that the difference is not the difference within these two, uh, these or these three uh, ministries. The difference is not a difference of content, as if you know teaching is entails one content and and reading a different different content. Rather, the the idea here is is purpose. So it's the same content, but you use it with different purposes. It's all scripture, but it's. It's, uh, it's applied and, and used differently. The scripture is useful to read, to exhort from, and to teach doctrine, all using the same or drawing from the same content, but for different purposes. And the first, which Paul says, is reading. Timothy is to, is to give attention to reading in the context of the local church. Now, earlier in the notes last time, I mentioned that FBC is a Bible-centered church because we believe in the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. We're not talking here about private Bible reading, which is important, and Pastor touched on that uh, this morning in in the Sunday school uh, time at the end there. That is important, but that's not what Paul, is, I think, is speaking about here. He's talking about the public reading of Scripture in the context of the local church. We see this example all the way back in the Old Testament of public reading of Scripture. Um, the law was read publicly at the Feast of Tabernacles. We see this in Deuteronomy chapter 31, and uh, I'll just read that as one example. Deuteronomy chapter 31, if I can get there quickly. 31 verses 9 to 13. It says, uh, in, beginning in verse 9, So Moses wrote this law and delivered it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who bore the Ark of the Covenant and of the Lord, and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, at the appointed time, in the, years of re- in the year of release, at the Feast of Tabernacles, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Gather the people together, men and women and little ones, and the stranger who is within your gates, that they may hear and that they may learn to fear the Lord your God and carefully observe all the words of this law, and that their children, who have not known it, may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land which you cross the Jordan to possess. And so it's not that necessarily we draw the application from Deuteronomy 31 that we should have public reading in the context of the local church, although it is a good example, but really the idea is the same in that the reason we read is so that they learn to fear the Lord. We learn to fear the Lord when we read Scripture, when we hear it read to us, 
uh, we, we absorb it, hopefully, and we listen to it and apply it. We see um, uh, a similar uh, example in 2 Corinthians 3.14 where Paul draws upon the example of the Old Testament of how the law of Moses was read as an application uh, today to how we are to listen to the word of God and, and draw from it. In the New Testament, we see that the portions of the law were read on every Sabbath. And so uh, in Deuteronomy 31, we saw that it was to be read every 30, or excuse me, every seven years at the Feast of Tabernacles. And then uh, here in the New Testament, we see that portions of the law were read on every Sabbath. And we see this in Acts chapter 13, 15, uh, verse 27 of chapter 13. And then also in Acts fifteen twenty one, and uh, we saw that we see throughout all of Acts that Paul often goes to the synagogue to reason in the reason uh, with the Jews there and the God fearing Gentiles because that was where they gathered to hear the word of God read, and so Paul would go there and to to reason with them about the scriptures and to reason with them that Jesus is the Christ. I say the best way to immerse yourself in God's word is to read it or have it read to you. Have you ever just listened to maybe the audio Bible you have maybe on your phone or on a computer? Of course, we we make it our practice on Sunday mornings and Sunday evenings to read, to have a portion of scripture read for the very purpose of having it transform our life, to just kind of sit there and and hear it. Um, It has a little bit of a different kind of uh, uh, value when you just kind of are able to sit there and have it read to you if you're engaged in listening, as you shouldn't. The reason that we then devote a portion of our service to the reading is so that we are immersed in more scripture and we follow the example here in First Timothy 4, verse 13, of, of having the scripture read. But that's not the only thing we do. Uh, if we were to just read the scripture, I think we would fall short of, of the purpose of gathering and uh, learning the scripture because reading is good, but there are difficult portions of scripture that we need to have explained. And we need to hear it uh, applied to us and hear the exhortations of scripture be, be told to us from whoever's teaching or preaching. And so Paul says this, that not only is Timothy to give attention to reading, but also to exhortation. Exhortation has the, this idea of the act of emboldening another in belief, so emboldening them to accept something as the truth, or emboldening them to a course of action, to do something. You know, you give someone a command, and the, the idea is that they'll follow that, to obey it, and to take up some course of action. Exhortation, though, can also have this idea of encouragement, to encourage someone to something or just simply encourage them in the word to remind them of the promises of God and and to encourage them in that way. Some uh, say that preaching conveys the idea here well. You know, exhortation, we could say, is is preaching, or vice versa. Preaching is exhorting. And I tend to agree with this idea that it's similar in idea. And as a pastor, our job is not just to convey the idea, but to embolden you to respond in belief or, or action, a change of, of thinking or living. 
Remember what 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 tells us, the, what is the value of Scripture? It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And so we can use Scripture for all those ways, including exhortation. And so Timothy was to encourage and exhort the church in the faith, not just read the Scripture, but also exhort through means of the Scripture. We're using the content of Scripture to do that. The act of exhortation, though, is not just for the pastor. That is not just his ministry, his, his, his uh, uh, responsibility. All believers are to be doing this. Did you, did you know that? It's not just limited to the pastor. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 5, we see this. If I can get there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11. Um, Paul is writing about the, the, uh, the resurrection uh, of those in the future. And he says, uh, verse 6, Therefore let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. He's talking about the day of the Lord, that is. Uh, For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober putting on the breastplate of faith and love as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Then verse 11, uh, Therefore comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. And the idea there is that you are to exhort one another to exhort one another, encourage them, comfort them with these words. And so it is not just the pastor who does the exhorting from the pulpit, but you as a, as a believer can go to another brother or sister and exhort them, encourage them by the word of God. It's not just the ministry of the pastor to do this. Finally, Paul says in verse 13 in this kind of triad of instructions, he says to Give attention to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. And this is the act of teaching or instruction. That's the idea here. It is to be uh, doctrine is 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 something which uh, is in, entails the idea of teaching. Believers need to be taught and instructed in the Word. Teaching and preaching are closely tied, yet yet distinct. I think we can say. We could put it this way. Uh, we might say that. Teaching focuses more on explanation, whereas preaching emphasizes exhortation or commanding, calling someone to respond in a certain way. However, I say neither are completely void of the other. We shouldn't just explain without giving some kind of exhortation along with it. It may, it may be more heavily lean on the teaching side, the explaining side, but we don't want to just leave it at that without calling someone to, to respond in some way, in a proper manner. Although I say we believe in the the perspicuity of Scripture, that is the clarity of Scripture, the ability to understand it through normal means, through normal grammatical and just language means, doctrine is necessary or teaching is necessary because, as I said earlier, some passages are more difficult to understand than others. And so to simply just read it may 
not allow us to capture its, its, its full meaning and application. And so we may need someone more skilled in the Scripture, more mature, more, more read and trained in the Scripture to teach it to us. And that's okay. We're all at different levels. We all need that from others. And we need that, that ministry of teaching. We, we see this, uh, this idea here actually in Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8, verses uh, 1 to 7. Let me read that to you. Here it says, uh, <clears throat> it says, Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women, and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday, before the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So Ezra the scribe stood on the platform of wood, which they had made for the purpose. And beside him at his right hand stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, uh, Urijah, Hilkiah, and Messiah, Messiah, and at his left hand, Pedadiah, Mishael, uh, Malkijah, <laughs> Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. You can be thankful we don't make you stand for the whole sermon there. <laughs> we let you stay seated. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Um, and then uh, you see that list of names in verse 7. I'm not even going to try those, but it says at the end of verse 7, or yeah, at the end it says, And the Levites helped the people to understand the law. And the people stood in their place, so they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. I take, I draw from this this similar idea of the Levites were instructed to help teach the law, to explain it, to have it make sense, so that it wasn't just you know going one in one ear and out the other. So the idea here is that they taught the law to them. They had it read to them, and then and then it was explained so that they could understand it and, and then apply it. And so Paul, going back to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, commands Timothy to take up these activities in the church of reading, exhorting, and teaching. All three are important. You cannot have one and leave out the others. They, they are all necessary for a Bible-centered worship or ministry. Paul then goes on to give more instructions here in verse 14 of 1 Timothy 4. He says to Timothy specifically, he says, Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with, with the laying on of hands of the hands of, of the eldership. Paul then here I see is instructing Timothy to continue in the ministry with endurance. Not only is he to have a Bible-centered ministry, but he is to endure in that ministry. 
endure, to show and to demonstrate endurance. And this is the second of three references in the pastoral epistles to Timothy's commissioning into ministry. We see we saw the other one earlier on in 1 Timothy 1.18, and then uh, you can see the other in 2 Timothy 1.6, which I'll read that one to you since we haven't touched on that one already. 2 Timothy 1.6, Paul writes to Timothy and says, Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. And so, like uh, we see in 2 Timothy 1.6, similarly here in 1 Timothy, Paul is encouraging Timothy to endure, to continue on, to continue on. It's unlikely, though, that, that I wouldn't think of the, this command as intended to reprimand Timothy for giving up. It's not as if Timothy had given up and now Paul's saying, come on, Timothy, keep on going, you know, pick yourself back up. Rather, um, it should be understand as an encouragement to one who perhaps has become a little weary. He hasn't given up. We know that from Timothy's conduct and his character that he is a man set on serving the Lord and, and doing his ministry well, but even the best of men be, can become weary, especially when you understand the context here of what Timothy is dealing with in Ephesus. False teachers, those who are apostatizing, those who are following after silly myths, you know, uh, and uh, endless genealogies, and, you know, and Timothy's trying to undo this mess. Any person would become weary in that work. And so Paul here is intending to encourage Timothy, not reprimand him, but encourage, encourage him to, to keep on using that gift. Keep on doing what God has do, uh, wants you to do, what he has gifted you to do. Now, the gift that uh, is in Timothy refers to the spiritual gifts given to Timothy by the Spirit, by God's grace, which was enabling him to complete his ministry. It's the gift that Paul talks about in 2 Timothy 1.6, which we just read about. That's uh, easy, I think, to understand, but what is more, a little bit more difficult to understand is what Paul means here in this clause, which was given to you by prophecy. This clause here modifies the gift that is in Timothy. So this then begs the question, did Timothy receive the gift by actual means of prophecy? So the prophecy kind of then bestowed the gift upon him. It was the efficient cause, or is Paul saying that the prophecy is, is linked to the gifting, but it's not the means or the agent, it's, it's something else. I say it's, it's not possible that the prophecy is the agent or means by which Timothy was given the gift. Why do I say that? Well, because that's God's role. That's the, the role of the Holy Spirit to, to gift someone with a spiritual gift. It's not... It's not something that man can do through prophecy or laying on of hands. That is the work of, of God's spirit. And so we shouldn't see then the prophecy being the means by which uh, Timothy was gifted. This, rather, the prophecy simply indicates that Timothy already possessed certain spiritual gifts. I'll explain what I mean by, uh, by that in just a moment. But I say the conclusion should be made about the next clause in this verse, uh, the, the clause with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. 
Think about, uh, for instance, if you ever observed a pastoral ordination or perhaps a commissioning service of a missionary or some church planner or um, some other ministry, a camp ministry. Pastors will often at these kinds of services pray for the candidate or missionary and they'll lay their hands on them. This act of laying on of hands is not supernatural. It, is, it does not endow and do someone with power. It does not give them spiritual gifts. Rather, it's simply symbolic. Of, it's a symbolic kind of act of saying we are commissioning them, we are recognizing in them gifts that already were there, that they already possessed. And, and so we're kind of commissioning them and laying our hands upon them and saying through that that we believe this person is gifted and we are commissioning them to ministry, to service to the Lord. The prophecy and laying on of hands then, I say, simply indicated or recognized the gifts that Tim- Timothy already possessed. It didn't give them him the gifts, it just recognized them. So Paul then is encouraging Timothy to make use of the gifts he possesses, calling then to remembrance the testimonies which surrounded his commissioning into the ministry, the testimony of this, this prophecy and laying on of hands. Perhaps a pastor or a missionary feels this at times when he becomes weary. He has to kind of think back to, yeah, I remember when I first felt called into the ministry. I remember, um, I remember the church who encouraged me in the ministry and helped me along and recognized, yeah, you know, we think you're think your God is calling you in this direction and, and and remembering that can stir one up and encourage them to, to persevere, to keep on going, to not give up, because they know that not only has God enabled them, but there are people in their lives who have recognized that as well and want to see them persevere as well in the ministry. And so I think that is what Paul is doing here. He's encouraging Timothy to remember that very fact that he has been gifted and Others have recognized that gifting in his life. And then in verse 15, Paul says this, Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. Paul here is encouraging Timothy to demonstrate diligence in the ministry. There are four uh, imperatives found in these last two verses, in verses 15 and 16. And all four of these have a kind of continuous aspect, which then expresses Paul's urgency and concern for Timothy. The idea is that Timothy must continually, constantly follow these instructions. Not stop, but continue in them. The word uh, meditate means to improve by care or study or practice, to cultivate, to take pains with something. I think other translations perhaps capture the idea more clearly. For instance, uh, the NASB says this, take pains with these things. Or the ESV says practice these things. That might be a little bit more understandable to the majority of us. Timothy then was to be cultivating or practicing Paul's instructions in his life and in his public ministry so that others would see his progress. We see that at the end of verse 15. Now, uh, not only is he to meditate on these things, but he is also 
to, uh, it says, give yourself entirely, or some translations say absorb, uh, be absorbed by these things, or be absorbed to them. And um, this word absorbed is not found in the Greek text. A literal translation would be, be in them. In other words, immerse yourself in them. The idea is that Timothy was to diligently be putting into practice Paul's instruction in personal ministry and public ministry and show himself uh, progressing in this. He is to absorb himself in his ministry and in practicing these things. And by doing so, Paul says, Timothy's progress will be evident to all. For any believer, for all believers, true progress in the faith will always be evident to others. There is no faith that doesn't manifest itself in in good works, in an evident progress toward godliness. However, the the word progress uh, inherently implies that one is not yet perfect. Timothy is not in a state of perfection. He's not the perfect minister, the, the perfect pastor by any means. Neither was Paul, by the way, or any other human. So as a pastor, one needs to kind of temper the idea that he, you know, he has to be perfect in order to lead the church. No, that's not the case. It's not an excuse either, but it's, he has to recognize the fact that he is, like other believers, progressing in his ministry and in his personal life, his godliness, And in that sense, then, I I believe that the Christian minister should not try to hide his flaws or failures and kind of, you know, uh, just show himself as being perfect. But he, too, should demonstrate that he is making progress by diligently putting into into practice God's word. Doesn't hide his flaws, doesn't have to flaunt them either, but just evidence that he is human like everyone else and that he is working towards godliness. Just as he encourages his flock to advance in Christ's likeness and manifest the fruit of the Spirit and all of God's commands, equally so, he too should be making evident progress. I think, interestingly enough, Paul is contrasting what Timothy is to be doing, which is to be evidencing progress, with the lack of progress in the lives of the false teachers. Look, for instance, at uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 9. Whereas Timothy was to make evident his progress in godliness and doing the work of the ministry, Paul says this about false teachers in chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, excuse me, chapter 3. He says, um, uh, let me back up just a little bit. He says, uh, Verse 6, for of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disproved concerning the faith, but they will progress no further, he says. For their folly will be manifest to all, as theirs also was. And then uh, in verse 13, he says of the same chapter, But evil men and impostors will progress or grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And so 
uh, we have here on the one side false teachers progressing not from good to better, but from worse to worse. And that was not to be the example that Timothy was setting. Rather, he was to be progressing in his godliness, setting an example to the believers, unlike the failed example of the false teachers in the church. And then in verse 16, Paul says this, Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing that, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Paul here then is encouraging Timothy to moral and doctrinal perseverance in his ministry. Timothy is to take heed of himself and his teaching, both his private life and his public ministry. He is to watch over his personal life and his ministry so that he does not make shipwreck his faith like some had. Rather, continue on, persevere, not fall into sin. Many pastors and ministries have faltered and crumbled because somewhere along the way, the pastor stopped maintaining a disciplined moral personal life which inevitably then affected his teaching ministry and the church as a whole. And I believe that's really what Paul is encouraging Timothy against here, is to not get into that kind of situation where he lets himself uh, falter, goes into sin, but rather persevere morally and doctrinally in his ministry. And so I believe here that what Paul is really speaking about here is the, the scriptural idea of perseverance, both in, a, in, a, in one's personal life, but in, also in his ministry as well. It is the unmistakable teaching of scripture that persevering in the faith is a mark of genuine salvation. Anyone who's, who is genuinely saved will persevere. doesn't mean that they live a perfect life, <laughs> It's not what perseverance means, but it means that they will persevere to the end in their faith. They will not apostatize. They will not turn away. They will continue on in the faith. And the reason for this Paul's, uh, Paul's command for Timothy to persevere morally and doctrinally is found at the end of verse 16. Why does he take heed to himself and to his teaching? Why, does, why is he to continue in them or persevere in them? Paul tells us that in doing that, in persevering, Timothy will save both himself and those who hear him. Now, uh, inevitably, we have to ask ourselves this question. How do we interpret the meaning of save? What does Paul mean that he will save both himself and those who hear him? Some suggest that Paul means Timothy and the church will be, quote-unquote, kept safe, from the false teaching, that could be one idea, because, of course, that's what P, uh, Timothy is, is uh, fighting against here, is trying to, uh, to, uh, uh, to save the people from and to keep them from. However, um, from kind of a grammatical standpoint, Paul does not use the typical word that would be translated kept safe. And so from that reason alone, we may kind of... Uh, warn ourselves away from that interpretation. Others suggest that we 
have here the idea of perseverance. And I think this is the better of the two interpretations because it connects to what is said at the beginning of the verse, that Timothy is to persevere in these things, to, to continue in them. So how do we understand this then? Well, by being an example to the church, that is, with Timothy takes heed to himself and gives himself continuously to the teaching of the scripture, Timothy himself will help himself stay the course, persevere, while helping others to do the same. Now, ultimately, God is the one who preserves and saves, or saves and preserves, maybe better order, but God can use other men as agents to help believers run the race well also, to help them persevere. So I think what Paul means then here is not that they'll be saved in a kind of soteriological way, that he'll, he'll get them saved or resave them or whatever the case may be, but rather that he will, he will help them persevere in the faith and also himself. And I think we see this, uh, this theologically backed up from other verses as well in Scripture. Um, in fact, in James chapter 5, where our brother James has been, in verse 20, but uh, let me start in verse 19. He says, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, I think this is talking of a believer here, let him know that he, will, he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. I think here we have the same idea here that if one believer comes to, goes to another believer who's wandered from the truth, he can help him, restore him to right thinking, to right behaving, to uh, uh, right conduct. And in doing so, he will, he will, he will help him in his, in his, in his uh, effort to persevere in the faith. He will save him from apostatizing. Of course, we know that a genuine believer cannot apostatize, but nonetheless, uh, he can help him in his, in his uh, perseverance. I think that we see a similar uh, idea in Jude chapter, or not Jude chapter, but Jude 23, only one chapter here, Jude 23. It says in verse 20, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. Again, here the idea of perseverance in the, in the faith. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction. But others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. And so this verse, along with the one we just looked at, in, in uh, comparison to what Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, verse 6, 16, I think we can confidently say that what Paul has in mind is that by being an example, Timothy can help others persevere in their faith and also help himself as well run the race well to the end. Uh, one commentator kind of summarizes it well in this way. He says, It is not that Timothy's endurance would merit salvation. That could not be the case. That's not biblically correct to say that. 
but that a stamina that produced holiness in doctrinal orthodoxy gave uh, incontrovertible evidence of heading for salvation. Second, he says, Paul suggested that the obedient perseverance of the preacher is an important factor in the endurance of the hearers. The preacher's model of perseverance builds that same trait in his flock. The stumbles and fumbles of a wandering spiritual leader will infect a congregation with a variety of spiritual sicknesses. I think uh, what he has to say is worth noting, and, and specifically what he says there at the end, that by modeling a life of perseverance, walking in the faith, uh, the, the, the flock will inevitably kind of nurture that same trait to keep themselves on the narrow path, as it were. But in contrast, like the false teachers, if they don't model genuine faith and a persevering kind of faith, then what will happen? Well, the flock kind of follows after them. And we see this, this in First Timothy, where some apostatized, some wandered away, made shipwreck their faith. So as we conclude this evening, uh, to just kind of look at the, the broader uh, context here, I think we can draw from all the way back in verse 6 through verse 16 kind of eight principles to learn from. I want to kind of draw that out because we've looked at some of the details so closely that we don't want to lose the forests and the trees. So here are the eight principles that we can draw from all the way back in verse 6 all the way through verse 16. By following, number one, by following Paul's instructions, Training himself in the gospel and good doctrine, Timothy will be a good minister. We saw that in verse 6. Number two, Timothy should avoid myths, but exercise for the goal of godliness, verses 7 to 10. Number three, he should command these instructions and teach, verse 11. Number four, he should not let people look down upon him for his conduct, but be a good example. Saw that in verse 12. Number five, he should devote himself to Scripture. Saw that in verse 13. Number six, he should not forget that he has the gifts for ministry. Number seven, he should continually practice these instructions so that his progress is evident to all. Number eight, he should watch himself in his teaching, that is, remain in them, persevere in them, for by persevering, he will help himself and others who listen to persevere as well. I think we can say that at least seven of these, if not eight of them, apply to all of us today. We are to be training ourselves in the gospel. We are to be exercising ourselves toward godliness. We should be committed to the word of God. We should be an example in our conduct. We should use our spiritual gifts. Maybe that's not the gift of teaching, but you do have a gift. We should continually practice Paul's instructions so that our progress is evident, and we too should watch ourselves, that is, keep ourselves from sin, and make sure that what we are saying is accurate and true to the Word of God. And in doing so, you don't know the kind of influence you will have on someone else who just needs that example of godliness to save them from from making shipwreck their faith. And so, in doing so, you can save someone in that way. 
Let's close in a word of prayer this evening. Heavenly Father, we pray now as we go that you would bless your people, you would keep them, Lord, protect them from the devil's schemes, Lord, protect them from ungodly ways. Lord, may we heed the instructions of Paul, as Paul gave them to Timothy, to be those who exhort one another, to encourage them. Lord, to be those who read the scripture, hear it read to us. Lord, may Lord, may we continue on and persevere in our conduct, in our way of living. Not make shipwreck our faith, but Lord, persevere to the end. And by doing so, Lord, make evident the progress we're making towards godliness. Not perfection, but more and more holiness. And Lord, by doing so, may we also help others to do the same. Keep them, Lord, from falling away. Lord, we thank you for your day that you've given to us. And uh, Lord, may we go forward this week, keeping our eyes fixed on things above, and Lord, and not things of this world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.